When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. Economics Editor at The Economist. Happy New Year. Today, we'll be hearing from four amazing, bright, young economists. These aren't just any four. Yes, they're experts in their fields, but they're also the people we at The Economist are tipping as the ones to look out for now and in the future. Their economics research is making waves, it matters, they're influencing policy and thinking about a variety of fields. But what drives them and what questions are they trying to answer? We'll find out today. Welcome to Money Talks. Every 10 years since 1988, The Economist has written a profile of the eight most promising young economists around. We've picked Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, Freakonomics' Stephen Levitt, Esther Duflo, who pioneered the use of randomized control trials in development economics. This year, my colleague Simon Cox, our Emerging Markets Editor, has written the piece and picked our top eight economists. And I'm going to meet a few of them on a sort of economist road trip. I'm currently at Harvard University, standing just outside the economics department. But first, here's Simon to explain who these eight economists are and how we picked them. These eight economists are the ones that we think represent the future of the profession. We've picked them largely by consulting senior members of the uh, economics discipline, including many economists who we've included on these lists in the past. A lot of these young scholars are already you know, quite well established within their field. Some of them are reasonably well known, even outside of economics. So I wouldn't say we're going for people who are entirely undiscovered. There won't be too many names on this list that will surprise aficionados. But they will be people that our readers are probably unfamiliar with. And they're people who we expect will inherit, if you like, the prestige of the profession and might uh, therefore inherit some of the, the profession's power as well in the future. I'm here at the economics faculty at Harvard University at the Litauer Center. I'm in the foyer and I'm about to meet Stephanie Stancheva, who's a professor of economics. And, and I think if I had to summarize her research agenda in one word, it would be tax. Walking up the steps, there are lots of portraits of very eminent economists on the walls. We've got Joseph Schumpeter. We've got people wandering around with economics textbooks. We've got John Kenneth Galbraith. Lots of men. Thomas Schelling. Now walking down a corridor, all looks very scholarly. And I think here she is. Hello. Stephanie, I I want to talk about uh, your research, but first I want to ask about you. Why did you decide to be an economist? 
I grew up actually in many different places. So I was born in Bulgaria. I lived in Eastern Germany before the fall of the wall. And then we moved to France. I was actually able to witness a lot of very different economic environments. And there were things that were puzzling me that I was seeing before understanding that they were really economic forces driving things. And when I became you know, old enough to understand them, I realized that economics could actually be a great tool to have answers to these puzzles. So, you know, for instance, when I was growing up, there was a hyperinflation in Bulgaria. So we had to literally run to the store before, you know, the prices increase. And then I was wondering, you know, why is it the case that in Eastern Germany, people earn so much less than in Western Germany, in France? Why is it that some people, you know, sleep on the streets, but others dine in fancy restaurants? It seemed to me that uh, economic research has some promise to actually be able to answer these questions. I think the topics that I study are perhaps a bit unusual. One is about the longer run effects of taxes. Think of innovation, education, migration, inequality. Second is what are the effects of taxes when things don't work as smoothly as in perfect markets or when there's rents or bargaining or when people have, you know, trouble understanding a too complex tax code. And the third is actually about how people form their social preferences. So what are their perceptions, attitudes and values underlying why they would support some tax policies rather than others. Let's talk about the specific findings in your research and and start off with this idea that some have, which is that, you know, really what you should be doing is just whacking the rich with higher taxes, right? They're not taxed enough. We need to we need to tax them. And you've looked into some of the unintended consequences of that. Yes, absolutely. You're right that, you know, every tax has uh, costs, which are sometimes unintended. And I think innovation is a great example of that. So when we set taxes for reasons other than targeted to innovation, like redistribution, raising revenues, we may actually, as a byproduct, reduce innovation by firms and individuals. And that's because when they're faced with the tax, the firms and the individuals just don't bother to innovate as much because they don't get to keep as much of the proceeds for themselves. Exactly. And, you know, in theory, we always have this idea that inventors are a bit mad scientists who just love their research and are unresponsive to financial returns. You know, a bit like Newton sitting under a tree, the apple falls, invention happens. But actually, a major and increasing part of innovation happens within companies and requires quite intentional, directed and often very costly inputs. And so these companies and individual inventors may very well change their activity in response to taxes. And so taxes can have detrimental effects of innovation if it sets the wrong incentives for them. Does that mean we shouldn't tax these innovators at all? No, it definitely does not mean that. So uh, the efficiency costs of taxes, such as reduced innovation, are just one part of the equation that we need to solve to set the right level of the taxes. I know the other one is the benefits of those taxes, which are raising revenues in a fair way and redistributing income. So we have to balance these economic costs, for instance, lost innovation, against those benefits from redistribution. And what do we know about how people think about those benefits? So if you had this idea of the government trying to set the right balance between those two and I suppose they might be responding to their voters in some way. What do we know about how those preferences are formed? Yeah, so in fact, this area of social preferences, which you're alluding to, is an area that's been quite neglected by economists. Although, you know, the early fathers like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill were really worrying about this without having any data on it. And that's 
the other big part of my research agenda is, you know, what are the social attitudes, values, and perceptions that determine why some people would support some policies rather than others. And for this, I use a new tool, which is large-scale surveys and online experiments that I design and run in several countries. And I think this use of survey data is really key because there are things like perceptions and attitudes that you cannot really see in any other data, no matter how good it is. What do you find? The big finding would be that when it comes to social preferences, yes, people have much more complex attitudes and perceptions than what we typically think of as economists. And behind these attitudes lie perceptions or often misperceptions that inform them. And so I can tell you about two specific projects. One is about immigration. One is about social mobility. On immigration, people tend to prefer to redistribute towards people more like them. In the data, we see that people are quite opposed to redistributing towards immigrants. So generosity seems to not travel very well across national, ethnic, and religious groups. But the twist is that people have quite wrong perceptions about immigrants. People tend to think there's way more immigrants than there actually are, that they're more culturally distant from them and economically much weaker, so low-educated, more unemployed, more reliant on government transfers. And in fact, you know, if you just make people think about immigration before asking them about how much redistribution they support, that has a significantly negative effect on, on their view for redistribution. These large misperceptions about immigrants could be very strongly related to your wish to not redistribute towards these groups. What was really striking about Stephanie was how driven she was by these really big policy questions. The next stop on this road trip is Melissa Dell, and she's also driven by these big questions, but of a slightly different sort. She's interested in poverty, in the weather, in the impact of bombing. Before she went into detail on those, I asked her how she would describe her job as an economist. So I think it's kind of the perfect combination of you know, thinking about lots of fun questions, like interacting with smart people and also getting to play with data and play with programming. If you had to describe the, the kinds of big questions that your research is, is trying to answer, how, how would you do that? Generally speaking, I'm interested in how societies become prosperous economically and well-functioning, secure places that are safe to live, you know, where people can really thrive. So part of that is understanding how economies develop economically over time, you know, how they move from being overwhelmingly agricultural to advanced economies with specialized production that are innovating on the global research frontier. The other part of that is understanding political stability and how politics interacts with economics and and that piece of the picture as well. So it's not purely about the economics and the industries that they're specialized in, but also understanding about how states create order, create a monopoly on violence, create a society that is stable and well-functioning. On that topic of violence, one of your really interesting papers is on the impact of bombing in the Vietnam War. Could you tell us a bit about that? Why is it not a straightforward question to ask and and how did you go about answering it? The question that we look at is how bombing impacts 
military and political outcomes in Vietnam that the U.S. cared about. Um, so the U.S. was bombing both to achieve military objectives, you know, the idea that you have more shells and more napalm until the other side, you know, gives up and goes home. But at the same time, they were also trying to use that to impose the control of the state. And we wanted to look at whether or not this was effective. Did it actually weaken the insurgents? Um, were citizens more likely to obey the state? or less likely after they were bombed. Because the U.S. was dropping so many bombs, they in part used this algorithm to decide where to bomb. They had 169 questions about security, but also about politics, about the economics of hamlets. They used this complicated algorithm to produce a score. But then before they printed it off and sent it to military planners, they rounded it to the nearest whole number. So we compare the places right at the threshold. One was just barely rounded down, the other was just barely rounded up. And they look exactly the same before the bombing, but then we see that after the bombing and the places that got rounded down and had therefore a lower score and were more likely to be bombed, we see an increase in the activity of the Viet Cong over the course of the war. This ended up being counterproductive to what the U.S. was trying to achieve. It seems though that the message is quite clear that military intervention can have these counterproductive effects. Can we also talk about your research on the weather? This seems like a funny kind of policy intervention. How does that relate to economics? What does your research try to answer on that topic? Yeah, so I I got interested in this because most of the poor countries in the world are in the tropics. So there's this overwhelmingly strong correlation between a country's average temperature and its level of GDP. Some years may be hotter, some years may be colder, and that's effectively random. And we can look at how GDP and other outcomes vary with that. In countries that are poor, so they have below average global income, in years where it's unusually hot, their GDP is lower That's true in agriculture, but it's also true in industry. Whereas in wealthier countries, we don't see a strong relationship. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm walking across Harvard campus. Apparently it's called Harvard Yard. There's a big statue of John Harvard, complete with a crowd of tourists. He's got golden shoes. And people are touching his shoes. I'm just going to go around the tourists. (laughs) Oh no, they're following us. Now I'm going to leave Harvard and interview Parag Pathak. He's at MIT, which is a mere two metro stops away from Harvard. Will my DC metro card work? Hi. Hi. Uh, Sumaya. Sumaya. Hi. Sumaya, nice to meet you. Uh, you found it, huh? I found it. I Great. found it. Please come on in. Have Thank a seat. you. I was just looking around, and this is this is really excellent economist's office. We've got the textbooks. We've got some supply and demand diagrams on the wall. Yeah, <laughs> it's a real office. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some articles from the Economist actually on the wall too. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> Keeping it on brand. What I like to see. First, tell me, what made you want to be an economist? 
Well, I got excited about economics after my first few courses in college because it was this ideal mix of quantitative, rigorous reasoning applied to very important and difficult social problems. Why education in particular? You know, education has always resonated with me in part because of my own family background. So, you know, my, my parents were immigrants to the United States. You know, my grandmother's illiterate. My father was fortunate to get access to education in Kathmandu, Nepal, where he grew up. He got a scholarship to go on to medical school in India. He brought us to the United States. And education was this great engine of opportunity and mobility. So I wanted to understand more about it. What are the big questions that you're trying to answer? What's, what's the motivation there? There's really two big questions that are the themes of my work. The first is, how do we increase opportunities for disadvantaged kids? And I'm an economist, so the second direction that I'm interested in is, how do we harness the power of markets? For good outcomes? How do we design markets? How do we make sure we have guardrails and adequate regulations to still get the best of markets, but still protect some of the weaknesses and drawbacks of markets? How does a market in education work? We don't normally think of people buying and selling school places. Yeah, that's what's uh, very interesting, actually. So the market for education is quite different than your traditional product market that we teach in undergraduate economics. Markets for education typically don't have prices. Now, you, you pay to go to a university, but in most public school settings, you don't pay to go to a public school. You may pay by choosing to live in certain neighborhoods. But one exciting area with education markets is how do we allocate kids into schools? What's a fair way and what's an efficient way? And, you know, several different cities in the United States and across the world have come up with different schemes to uh, ration school seats. And so sometimes those schemes start off with the best of intentions, but they end up with some unintended consequences. One example is a scheme that was actually outlawed by Parliament in the UK in 2007. It's a scheme that took kids' choices. So think about urban areas where there's many schools nearby and the district has decided to let people rank uh, schools. The system would try to give everyone their first choice. And the way it did that, it is it looked at first choices. So every school considered applicants who listed it first and assigned them one at a time according to, say, their criteria, maybe a test score or something like, uh, does your sibling go to the school or not? And only if you didn't qualify at your first choice would you be considered at your second choice. And the process would iterate for second choices. And then if you didn't get your second choice, your third choice, and so on. So this sounds like a really intuitive and simple idea, but it has this very perverse feature that what you rank first really matters. At this point, I'm going to interject because I remember my parents agonizing over which school to put as first choice when I was when I was applying to secondary schools, I think when I was 10, 10 years old. The scheme that was used in London at that time was what they call first preferences first. So your first preference will dominate the criteria at the school in the sense that if you rank something first and your test score is really low, and I've ranked that same school second and my test score is really high, and the school's policy is high scoring kids should get in over low scoring kids, the first ranker would get it over the second ranker. And the problem with that is, if I know that, I won't rank that school second, because I'm just wasting my choice. You'll have ranked it first, and you'll get it over me. So I have this complicated gamble that, you know, families like yours uh, agonized over, should I list that school 
how popular is that school? What are my odds of getting into that school? And what's neat about this problem is this is one of the few places in economics where you have an ideal mechanism or ideal way to clear the market. And what English authorities did in 2007 and what happened in Boston, actually this was part of my uh, dissertation work, they abandoned first preference first arrangements and adopted what they call in England equal preferences. And so that's a system that doesn't put weight on whether you rank the school first in determining your priority for a school. And that little change, you know, really it's a line of code in a computer algorithm, results in magical properties. So what would happen in our example is I would get to compete at my second choice school only if I didn't get my first choice. But when I apply to that school, the school would look at me as well as you. You've listed that school first and say, well, Parag, you have a higher test score, so you deserve to get into school. That's our policy after all. And sorry, Sumaya, you're not going to get in. You should go on to apply to your next choice. And because of that feature, there's no reason to be strategic about how you apply to school. So honesty is the best policy. And so our work has been trying to get schemes like this adopted throughout the, the United States. And we've had a lot of success. Eight big cities now in the U.S. use a system that is based on these principles. New York City, Boston, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Chicago, uh, and Indianapolis. What do we know about people's preferences? Are they making good choices here? Yeah, that's another area where education markets are, are very different than product markets. So if I buy an iPhone, I know it, it, it's a good product because I use it and the price provides a signal. With education, measuring quality is much more difficult. We've seen in a lot of examples that people often look at the characteristics or performance levels of schools and think that a high-performing school means it's a high-quality school. But in my research, we found several cases where parents struggle to measure value-added. We do have some signs of schools that are able to significantly increase value-added. And what I would love to see is a conversation shift to how do we create more of those schools rather than the current conversations about how do we determine who gets to go to a school like Boston Latin. Tarek, thank you. Okay, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks to Parag for trying to save parents the stress of working out how to game the education system. Now, as efficient as it would have been only to talk to Boston-based bright young economists, the fourth and final one I spoke to works on the East Coast of America. Emi Nakamura is the Chancellor's Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research focuses on monetary and fiscal policy, what causes booms and recessions. I wanted to know what questions she asks in her work? I'd say I'm interested in sort of the basic questions that macroeconomics has always been interested in. So why do we have these periods when it seems like the resources in the economy are really not being used the way they should be? Then there are a lot of people who are unemployed even when they want to be working. What do we know about the consequences of the various important policy measures that we have to try to deal with these recessions? What are the effects of fiscal stimulus? What are the effects of monetary stimulus? Monetary economics is about the idea that by changing the amount of money in the economy, you can stimulate economic growth. But at first glance, you would think doubling the amount of money and doubling the prices, that sort of just sounds like inches and centimeters, the amount of money in the economy. And yet it turns out that actually the Federal Reserve can have these very large effects on the economy. There are similar sort of fundamental questions that have to do with fiscal stimulus. Why would it make sense for the government to spend a lot of money to, to stimulate the economy, even if the government isn't necessarily better at doing things than the private sector? Can I ask you about your work 
since the financial crisis. You, you finished your PhD in 2007, is that right? Yes, that's right. Could you talk about the questions that the crisis threw up that, that you then went on to address in your own research? I remember that in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, people started to talk about fiscal stimulus. And, and the reason was that the traditional view is that if you have a choice, it's better to do monetary stimulus than fiscal stimulus. The logic being that fiscal policy typically takes a long time to implement. It takes a long time for Congress to pass laws about taxes and spending and so on. In your work, how did you try to resolve this question of whether fiscal stimulus works? We don't have that many aggregate data points on the consequences of fiscal stimulus. So what we did in our research was to try to use the fact that when the U.S. goes into a military buildup, there's a differential effect on different states in the United States. And fortunately, the government keeps very close records about exactly the consequences of increases in military spending for, for different states in the United States because it's a very highly politicized issue. And so we were able to you know, exactly look at if the U.S. goes into a military buildup, what's the effect on, say, California versus Illinois? And we see that it has a much bigger effect on some states than other states. And what we do is, is we use that as a natural experiment to analyze the consequences of fiscal stimulus. So we, we look at, you know, when the U.S. goes into these military buildups, which presumably aren't motivated by the fact that there's a recession in California, because we're thinking about these big geopolitical events like the Carter-Reagan military buildup then California gets a lot more money. And then the question is, do we see a big boom in the Californian economy relative to the Illinois economy? And what do you find? Does fiscal stimulus work? Yes, we find pretty large effects of these differential increases in government spending in particular states associated with these military buildups. So in, in some sense, the, the answer we get is, is very much consistent with the narrative that fiscal stimulus works in terms of stimulating the economy. One caveat to this is that when you're looking across different states, some aspects of the policy environment are different. So in particular, there's no pushback of monetary policy in California versus Illinois because the interest rate that the Fed sets is the same in all states. So unlike in the U.S. as a whole, you know, if the government spends a lot of money and it causes inflation, the, the Fed may raise interest rates or at least not lower them as rapidly when you look at one state versus the other. You're seeing the effect of fiscal stimulus with none of that sort of pushback from the Fed. And that means that the estimate that we get from this type of analysis is sort of more akin to the consequences of fiscal stimulus when monetary policy is constrained, like at the zero lower bound. So in that sense, I think it's a, it's a particularly interesting way of looking at the effects of fiscal stimulus for a situation like this period after the Great Recession when monetary policy really couldn't be very responsive. And I suppose the lesson for today might be that when the Fed is raising rates, I mean, perhaps to even offset a kind of fiscal stimulus from the Trump administration, then that fiscal stimulus may not be so effective. That's exactly one of the things we argue makes it hard to interpret the the aggregate data, if you're only looking at national statistics on GDP and government spending, that you have to deal with the fact that you're not just looking at the consequences of fiscal stimulus in a vacuum, that there's inevitably a lot of other factors that are moving around. That's one of the things that I think probably makes the aggregate evidence uh, much more sort of volatile. Do you think that macroeconomics has a problem because you inevitably end up thinking about the economy, which is this huge, huge, massive system and that can obscure mechanisms or differences 
beneath those aggregates. Macroeconomics is fundamentally about how things interact. And so in certain ways, I see the analogy more to a field like the study of the brain, where you just have this massive system of, of forces interacting with each other. And fundamentally, I think that makes the challenges much greater in trying to figure out what's going to happen when you think about, say, like a financial shock. Emmy, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you very much. After this economics tour, I asked Simon what he made of this year's list. What I think perhaps distinguishes this year's generation from some of the previous lists that we've compiled is that there's an almost self-conscious embrace of question-driven research. One might wonder, well, of course you do. What else would you organise your research around? But I think there had been a, a feeling that earlier generations of economists had embraced methods over questions. So instead of, for example, looking at schooling, they were particularly keen at pursuing randomised trials of a whole variety of different topics. And their critics sort of accused them of being more wedded to the lamppost than to the keys that they're supposed to be looking for. This cohort of economists seems very aware of those past criticisms, uh, whether they're just or not, and they seem to have sort of self-consciously organised their research around a few big questions that they come back to again and again. They're doing work that I think matters. Often they're quite engaged with policy, some in a really rather direct way. For example, work on a school choice has actually changed the way students are allocated to oversubscribed schools. So I think criticisms of economics have obviously been rising in popularity. Our own magazine has spent quite a lot of column inches discussing the problems of economics. This is one opportunity to celebrate the good work that's being done. A couple of the economists I spoke to mentioned that they had actually read our profile 10 years ago. So hopefully this list will inspire some future young economists to follow their lead. Speaking to these four made me want to go and read lots and lots of economics papers. Or even better, articles in The Economist. That's all for this week. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast provider. Thanks for listening and coming on the road with me. I'm Samaya Keynes in Washington. This is The Economist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.